Welcome, everyone, to our latest Geopolitics of Commodities podcast. I'm your host, Scott Smithson, and today we're joined by our guest, Mr. Mike Cow. Mike has been in investment uh, business for over 30 years and has experience analyzing and investing in many markets and asset classes, spanning commodities to credit to convertible capital structure, event arbitrage to distressed debt and equity investing. Mike began his career in the commodities unit at Goldman Sachs in New York City in the early 90s and traded over 25 different commodity markets and their derivatives. Mike left Goldman to pursue an MBA in finance at the Wharton School, and after that, Mike joined Canyon Partners, a credit-oriented hedge fund in L.A., where he went on to become partner and co-founder of the Canyon Arbitrage Fund, which focused on various strategies, including convertible and capital structure arbitrage, as well as event-driven risk arbitrage. After five years at Canyon, Mike decided to leave and begin his own investment firm, Akinthos Capital Management, LLC. At Akinthos, Mike ran an opportunistic, value-driven investment strategy that looked for fulcrum securities up and down the capital structure. Mike stopped actively managing external capital in 2019 and now invests primarily for his family office and enjoys blogging about the markets and economy on Substack at Urban Cowboy, and that's K-A-O-B-O-Y, urbancowboy.substack.com, and also on Twitter, at Urban Cowboy. Mike holds a BS in electrical engineering and computer science from UC Berkeley and an MBA in finance from the Wharton School at Penn. Mike, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much for joining the Lycan podcast. Oh, what a pleasure it is to, to come back on with you, Scott. I think when uh, we, we uh, you last were gracious enough to, to be my guest on my um, uh, Chaos Theory podcast, and I believe that podcast was uh, recognized by uh, Lycan as uh, the, the, bed po- the best podcast of the year. So, so uh, you know, I'm, I'm honored to, to be with you again. Well, thanks, Mike. Well, it sounds like we've got a lot to live up to, so we will uh, dive right into it. So, Mike, I had the, the great privilege of meeting you almost a year ago at an interesting conference held at the United States Military Academy at West Point that was looking at all different dimensions of geopolitical competition. Um, you had a phenomenal piece of work that we're going to get into later on the economic dimensions of warfare, uh, particularly how that's most salient. And I'm thinking about the APEC conference that literally is wrapping up right now in California with President Xi Jinping visiting and President Biden there. Uh, but before we maybe either get into that or, or talk about um, security in Asia, I, one of your areas of expertise for those who know your work is the interrelationship between fossil fuels and finance, specifically oil and petrodollars. And as we're kind of heading into the winter, into the Northern Hemisphere and the international community looks at geopolitical shocks and how that can impact energy. I just wondered if you could just kind of lay out for us just in very, very broad strokes, your idea of how you conceptualize the oil market, um, kind of we'll get into how it could be going on different conflicts that are heading on, but but just kind of in its in its absolute sense, how you think about oil, its relationship to finance in the dollar. Um, and that'll be a good foundation for us uh, for uh, going forward. Sure, sure. Happy to set the table here. So, I, I, look, <clears throat> oil. In my in my early days as a trader at Goldman, um, you know, I traded a product called the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, which was a capital uh, weighted index of all the important commodities. And you know, even back then, in my early twenties, I realized, wow, oil is the most important commodity in the world because you know the petroleum complex was about f- a fifty percent weight of the entire GSI 
that had, you know, 20 other commodities in it, right? Um, it's so, so there's that component. The other key component, of course, is oil is almost entirely, oil trade is almost entirely denominated in US dollars, right? And so you, you reference petrodollars. That makes it even that much more important, right? Because as we are in a, as we find ourselves in this macroeconomic cycle where the Fed has been the most hawkish central bank in the world in raising rates, it's caused what I call the US dollar wrecking ball. Now, you know, it's, it's caused a strengthening dollar. Uh, and, and we've also had this, uh, this period of uh, elevated oil prices. Um, and so and from my standpoint, that creates a sort of twin wrecking ball effect, especially for uh, countries that are uh, very dependent on external uh, flows, right? So China, our biggest geopolitical adversary, for instance, is, uh, is naturally short uh, oil, whereas we are naturally long. So the, the West Point paper that you referenced that, uh, that I contributed to and presented back in February was talking about, it was entitled, uh, you know, uh, U.S. dollar primacy in, an eco- in, a, in a world of economic war- uh, warfare. And it talks about how we don't really need to uh, over-rely on sanctions to get at our geopolitical adversary. But it, 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 in this domestic bid to end inflation, we have a natural geopolitical lever in a, in, in a strong U.S. dollar. Uh, mainly because of this twin wrecking ball effect. So to, to get into a little bit about my macroeconomic view on oil, it's a little bit nuanced. I've, I've uh, over the last several years, I have been very public in voicing that I am a long-term bull on oil. And in fact, in my own, uh, in my own, on my own balance sheet, since 2018, I've had a very large oversized position in an oil private equity. And the reason why I chose uh, private equity was, was that it was the result of a uh, post-reorganized restructuring of a company that my, my hedge fund participated in back in 2016. And I observed that, you know, look, oil is a very, very volatile commodity. Um, but my big picture in, in doing this long-term bet was that there has been a dearth ever since the shale revolution has come to the rescue uh, of, of, of the world, really. Um, there has been a dearth of long-term investment in conventional oil. And those, those conventional projects are typically five to seven year gestation type projects between, you know, shovel, you know, shovels uh, going into the ground, uh, you know, until actual production, right? So there's a long lead time between initial investment and production. So the fact that the world has over relied upon shale, which is not going to be a resource that's going to last forever, means that at some point, I coined this term, uh, the supply and demand singularity. And what I mean by that is I think there could come a point in time within the next, I don't know, five years, 10 years, where even a 
recession impacted demand picture will exceed all available spare capacity in the world. And that's where you have a situation where even OPEC has no ability to control prices. They lose control and oil could spike into the 300s or something, right? Um, well, that's my long-term uh, view. It's a long-term constructive view. But now let me temper that and say that within that long-term view, there can be very, very vicious short-term bear markets. So in, in, in um, early 21, um, I saw the near-term macro and the long-term view align. And I was wildly bullish oil. I saw that, you know, when, when uh, you know, you had the supply demand picture was picking up coming out of COVID. Uh, you had Biden taking office, and and the significance of that was that uh, the Biden administration has been, what, just since day one, was very, very hostile to the oil and gas uh, business, uh, also hostile to Saudi Arabia with a, with a pivot back to Iran. And so I thought all of these factors would lead to a very, very strong uh, oil market which it did in it, you saw what happened in 2021 and the early part of 2022. But starting in April of 2022, uh, after the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict sparked uh, uh, oil running up to 140, I started getting very cautious and turning bearish, actually. I said that, look, when you have a an oil, and, and the dollar was also very, very strong at that point. So you had this twin wrecking ball effect creating a negative feedback loop for demand. And I basically got bearish. I said, look, I'm, I remain long-term constructive and I chose private equity to not get shaken out during short-term economic cycles. But I think we're due for a, we're, we, we have a, a cyclical bear market. I made that call in April of 2022. And so if you look at the oil chart, oil was around 110 at the time. And up until recently, up until like July or August, <clears throat> uh, oil had reached you know the mid 60s, and then <clears throat> it spiked up. Um, and and you know part of it was was uh, seasonals in my view. Part of it was uh, uh, it, the most recent spike was this uh, Israel Hamas mm -hmm. uh, uh, impact. But but as you can probably see, it's but oil spiked from the the high 60s up to around 90. And now, uh, in fact, as we speak today, oil is getting uh, absolutely hammered. It's down, WTI is down 5.5%, back down to 72. And so this is something that I've been predicting for a while. I think what's happening here is that Saudi Arabia has unilaterally supported the price of oil, right? Uh, their their full production capacity is 12 million barrels per day. But starting about a year ago, I believe, they started cutting supply and they've done three, three voluntary cuts and they've basically taken 3 million barrels per day off the market. Now, I've, I've used a kind of uh, funny play on words. I call it premature emasculation. I say that Saudi Arabia and OPEC has prematurely emasculated itself because 
If you think about OPEC plus as the central bank for oil and the Fed as the central bank for dollars, um, there's kind of a clash of the titans here. The Fed is trying to slow down uh, the U.S. economy to to bludgeon aggregate demand to to take inflation down. Right. And so they've they've raised rates aggressively to apply that monetary depressant with the one tool that they have, which is the Fed funds rate. The central bank for oil, OPEC, also has one tool, and that is limiting supply. The problem, though, is that their tool is also demand restrictive, but but it has a perverse impact of also keeping the Fed more vigilant than it otherwise would be. So my my what I've opined for for many, many months now is that OPEC's playbook, I think, uh, should have been to let the Fed win this battle sooner than later, get so that they can uh, get inflation down and perhaps end their hiking cycle sooner than later. But because pre, uh, OPEC prematurely sort of emasculated itself with these cuts, now MBS finds himself with a situation where he's got no exit strategy from these unilateral cuts, even as global demand is faltering around the world now. So, so there's a lot to unpack there. But I think oh, there's there's one more thing I just I, I want to raise, which is a couple of months ago I wrote a, a thread about I called it the four uh, horsemen of U.S. economic resilience, and and I and I talked about how you know. We've got a structural and demographic factor that's that's causing labor and shelter inflation to be sticky. Uh, we've got this strong fiscal tailwind, uh, uh, some of which was left over from the COVID stimulus, but a lot of it is forward-looking between the uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the Chips Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act. That's like collectively 2.2 trillion of upcoming spend in the next five to ten, uh, ten years. And so that's a, uh, a fiscal tailwind that no other country has. The third horseman of U.S. economic resilience is relative floating rate insensitivity on the part of homeowners here that have the, the least amount of uh, floating rate or mortgage exposure in the world. And then on the corporate side of uh, things, our corporations have uh, only 25% exposure to floating rate debt versus 75% in, in the Eurozone, for instance. And then the fourth and final um, uh, uh, horseman of U.S. economic resilience is that of in energy independence. And I'll put the independence in air quotes because, again, as I alluded to earlier, um, you know, the shale resource is not going to last forever. Um, but right now, the U.S. is still the largest energy producer. And so... These four, when you consider that the U.S. is more resilient than the rest of the world, it it puts the Fed in this spot where it's going to remain, I believe, tighter for longer than what the markets are even implying right now. And it's going to make other central banks buckle first. And it's already making oil, which I call the global canary in the coal, economic coal mine, it's going to make oil buckle, and you're seeing that happen. Oil is a global commodity, and too many oil analysts apply a U.S.-centric view of oil when that is incorrect, and you're seeing that happen.
So I've said a lot. <laughs> no, this is great, Mike. It was, you know, as you were going through kind of your your landscape of uh, of the market, I was I was thinking about kind of where we are geopolitically right now in the world and just where we've been in the last few years and, and seeing how, for example, how the U.S. and the EU reacted mostly with economic instruments, at least at first, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, how that then kind of begat searches for energy security and diversification in other ways, but also ways in which those that are, I would say, not part of kind of the broader Western system, trying to find works around that. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that when there was the discussion of the BRICS, so Brazil, Russia, India, China, wanting to expand and that expansion of potential new BRIC members being major oil producing countries, that this would be an effective counter and that a BRICS currency, if and when it happens, would drive towards the precipitous fall of the dollar, of dollar, you know, de-dollarization. But you've been, you've had a very, very interesting kind of contrarian take on that. I, I believe you even had a post titled Bric-a-Brac on this very question <laughs> about dethroning the dollar and how it's tied to energy. And, 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 and for, our, for our listeners, too, I think, it, you know, the thing that's important when we think about long cycles of great powers, there's this, there's this intricate relationship between energy access, security, and finance, right? So if the 19th century was defined by access to coal, uh, the 20th was oil in the 21st century. Is it more oil? Is it eventually silicon? So we can talk about that. But, but if you can kind of walk us through kind of your counter argument of this idea of BRICS being this new glacial challenge to the dollar um, and kind of what that means for, for both energy and sanctions. Uh, I think our listeners would really enjoy that. Oh, wow. How many hours do we have, Scott? Um, <laughs> Maybe this is so, just part one. Yeah, so I, I <laughs> so that, so that, so that bricks of brack uh, piece that you referenced, I, I basically was tying together a number of reasons why I think once again, look, the de-dollarization argument is not new. It has been going on for mm -hmm. decades. And the reason why it has not taken shape is if you think about the confluence of factors that made the dollar dominant, it's not as if uh, it, the powers that be at Bretton Woods came together and said, we are going to force you to use dollar. I mean, maybe that was the initial intent and maybe there was a little bit of that at the very, very beginning. But as we pointed out in our uh, West Point paper, we, we talked a little bit about the history of the rise of the Euro dollar market, that is, the, the rise of dollar deposits that were being used in trade uh, outside of the purview of the Fed and outside of the U.S. And, and most importantly, back then in, in, uh, the, in the 1950s, um, outside of the purview of gold convertibility, long before the Nixon shock of 1971, the euro dollar market had already uh, uh, risen. And so... Our, our point in that paper is that what gives the U.S. dollar its role today as the global reserve currency goes a lot deeper than debt to GDP metrics. It goes to um, the pillars of national power. And so what, what are the pillars of national power? I mean, you know, I've, in, in our paper, we focused on the economic pillars. We said, look, there's, there's the all-important geographical assets 
right? Um, one of the things that uh, my my background in the in the corporate restructuring uh, uh, world gives me is I understand how bankruptcies work and restructurings work. And in the corporate world, <clears throat> when a company uh, has very high uh, a very high debt burden and files for bankruptcy, uh, the ultimate recoveries, right? It, 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 if there's a going concern, the company gets reorganized and it's a chapter 11 and kind of reemerges and the debt gets wiped out, right? But um, if, if it's not a going concern, there's a chapter seven, that's a liquidation, right? And then, and then the recovery of the debt depends on the asset value. So, so, so what I'm trying to point out that is that the sovereign analog to a corporate restructuring is that in both flows and, and stocks, meaning uh, assets, okay, the U.S. dominates on all fronts. So there's a lot of attention, uh, especially the, the, the BRICS de-dollarization argument is that the U.S. is such a profligate spender. We've got this budget impasse. We've got this fiscal unsustainability. Debt to GDP is above 100% again, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but what about the that, – that's, that's debt to GDP is a, is a stock – to flow metric. But when, what about stock to stock? Has anybody considered what the left side of the US balance sheet looks like when you consider our geographic assets, our assets to industrial capacity, our assets to food and arable land, our access to energy, our access to um, you know 17,000 miles of rivers, our access to uh, a huge amount of uh, you know coast, coastline and deep port capacity. Uh, and and the fact that we've got oceanic buffers, um, so so these things are. It's hard to put a dollar price on a lot of these assets. But if okay, if if we really really play this out to the end, where there is a, an, oh, before I even play it out to the end, I talk about how um, the the U.S. dollar is dominant, also because. We have the rule of law and we have like open and liquid capital markets. That is absolutely key because for the currency to dominate, you have to have an underlying liquid and trustworthy bond market, a sovereign bond market. And so um, if you don't, the U.S. dollar's dominance came about because of the confluence of all of these things, trust in in national power of the U.S. and natural resources, but which which also resulted in these liquid and deep markets that create this 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 uh, virtuous loop. That virtuous loop or that virtuous cycle is almost impossible, I would argue, for any of these upstart, top-down initiatives to break, because this virtuous cycle came about from a bottom-up acceptance of market participants. Capital will flow where there is trust and liquidity, and that's what the U.S. dollar system has. Um, with respect to, I think, what was the second part of your question, Scott, how it ties into yeah, so, oil? So I think, Mike, a, a good example would be, I think about seven or eight months ago, the Saudis mentioned, I think on the eaves of an OPEC meeting, that they would entertain the thought 
of allowing China to pay at least 20% of their sales with in, in R&B going forward. That hasn't happened yet. And so one of my questions is when you have oil producers say that they may entertain the idea of accepting more than one currency type, how much is that you know strategic and political posturing to try to send messages, particularly if you have a not so great dynamic between MBS and the Biden administration? How much is that uh, producers yes. trying to hedge, um, you know, sometimes statecraft to stagecraft and vice versa? Uh, so uh, just kind of understanding kind of what the, the implied and actual messaging is when someone talks about using non-dollar denominations of things to pay for and buy oil, yep. how, how you perceive that. Right. So uh, uh, that, that's 100%. Um, I, I think that it is almost all political posturing um, on MBS's part. Now, if you count Russia out, because look, Russia, it's not as if Russia has any choice, right? They've been frozen out of the dollar mm -hmm. system. Okay. But in, in MBS's case, I like to use the Amazon credit analogy. Okay. If you <clears throat> buy something on Amazon uh, and you return it, if it's if it's for 50 bucks, you're probably okay with keeping an Amazon credit for 50 bucks. But what if it's $10,000? You're probably going to want your cash back. And so if you put yourself in MBS's shoes, uh, China is one of his largest yes. customers, right? So, so, and MBS hates Biden. So if he has the opportunity to make a political headline to assuage his largest, uh, his largest customer and kind of, you know, poke the eye of uh, an administration that you don't like, he's going to do it. But MBS is also a pragmatist. Would he willingly put uh, a big chunk of his, his national treasure, uh, take it out of the U.S. dollar system, and put it into the RMB system, which is which has a closed capital account, and I've 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 written for many many months why there are there are the the PBOC in particular is really caught in what I call a sort of a Scylla Charybdis trap, where on the one hand, because of China's dependence on oil, which is a dollar denominated commodity. If the PBOC goes towards a weak uh, Chinese yuan, it could conceivably import commodity-based inflation. But if they go, if they veer towards the Charybdis of strong, strong uh, uh, Chinese yuan, they torpedo their export sector, which is the only game in town they've got because they've got no internal consumption, right? But I, I, I said though that. Because of this, this say, oh, this is such a complex topic. Because we are in this dynamic where there, there's a macroeconomic <clears throat> headwind to oil demand right now. Oil is is going to weaken naturally because of macroeconomic reasons, and there's a second geopolitical reason that that gives the PBOC cover to weaken the yuan without uh, importing inflation. And that is our administration's decision to empty our SPR 
and China's decision to basically take all Strategic that in. Strategic Petroleum that, Reserve for our listeners that, that don't know. Cor- correct. And that is one of my biggest frustrations as, a, as an American mm-hmm. citizen, right? Because I see that as a, as a grave geopolitical mistake. It is, it is essentially our, our remember, my, my four horsemen of economic resilience, right? One of them is U.S. energy independence, at least for now. <clears throat> we have willingly also given China temporary energy independence by doing what we did. And I think geopolitically, that's a mistake. And so, so, so now that between the, the short-term macroeconomic headwinds to oil and the fact that they've stockpiled at our expense, um, I think it gives the PBOC cover to continue weakening their currency without any worries about importing inflation. So, so this is all to say that you've got a currency that's got a closed capital account with tremendous pressure to devalue. And so going back to our MBS example, why would you, why on earth would you divert your national treasure from the US dollar system into that system? No, there, these, are, these are excellent points. And, and you know, <clears throat> we were ta- as we've talked about inflation, access to oil, geopolitics, one of the things that's interested me over the last month since the attacks in uh, against Israel on October 7th are those viewing this through the lens of energy security and disruption and saying, are we headed towards, a, if the conflict expands between Israel and other regional actors, are we heading towards another 1973-type scenario? Um, and, and while I think there's concerns... I think the listeners would benefit from understanding how the landscape, the structural aspect of oil, how much of that has changed since 1973 so that, you know, if this conflict expands and there is disruption, it's not going to be because of how people kind of understood what the landscape and the relationship was between geopolitics and OPEC then and kind of where we are now. And I just think it's a crucial difference that, many analysts are kind of glossing over, but one I think that's worth us kind of teasing out uh, how the energy landscape is fundamentally different from 50 years ago, even though we're talking about Middle East crises. I mean, it is so different. I'm glad you brought this up because, look, the U.S. um, was a, you know, oil, really, the, the importance of oil uh, was uh, was was uh, discovered in the U.S. right in the late uh, in the late 1890s, and you know for for quite a while the U.S. was like a dominant producer from conventional sources, but by the 1970s, our conventional production had pretty much already run out. And if you go back to 1973, that was an environment where we were completely dependent on the Middle East for oil, and we didn't know where our next molecule was coming from. And so that scenario, leaving geopolitics out of it, which is also very, very different, as I'm sure you'll agree, um, that gave the Arab countries uh, incredible leverage to apply pressure on the United States back then. You fast forward to today, the markets, the structural dynamic of the markets just could not be different. The United States is currently producing 13 million barrels per day. Now, Russia is uh, is 
is the second largest producer at, a, at roughly 10 million barrels per day. And Saudi Arabia, after its uh, 3 million barrels per uh, day of cuts, has taken has gone down from 12 to 9 million barrels per day. So we're the largest producer of oil in the world right now. And so, um, yes, the, the reason why I remain long term bullish oil, again, is that there are, <clears throat> you know, at some point, the chickens are going to come home to roost with respect to the lack of development and conventional sources, because shale is a resource that is not going to last. In fact, if you if you look at all of the shale basins in the U.S., every single one has already peaked except the Permian Basin. The Permian's growth is slowing down, but it is still growing, albeit at a slower rate. Right. So I, I, I remember at uh, at uh, at at West Point where we met, you know, having some some uh, interesting discussions with 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 people and, and and coming to the conclusion that, you know, a lot of a lot of people think that, you know, it, were it not for covid, we would be producing at 15 million barrels per day now geologically that cannot happen right so so that's the bull case longer term the bear case uh, in the shorter term is that we are again still the largest producer in the world so going back to <clears throat> why the initial geopolitical spike based upon the israel hamas conflict was very short-lived and i predicted that it would be is <clears throat> i just think that in the end here um the, 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 the knee-jerk response was to compare this to 1973 when the structural markets are completely different. Furthermore, I also, I've, I've had this um, contrarian viewpoint that I think the geopolitical risk to oil this time around is actually to the downside. And the reason why I say that is because, once again, you go back to the, these unilateral cuts that OPEC has done. Three million barrels per day with no exit strategy. And um, if you recall, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Saudi Arabia was in D.C. talking about what? I don't know. But I said, people have to pay attention to this because I, MBS to me is like Lord Baelish from Game <laughs> of Thrones, right? He, he, he's very, very adept at playing both sides. And even though initially he voiced solidarity with the Iranian president, you know, against Israel, right? MBS at the end of the day is a pragmatist for, and an opportunist for the interests of Saudi Arabia. And what does Saudi Arabia want forever? Saudi Arabia wants a security deal right. with the U.S., um, and, and Saudi Arabia has traditionally been a, a big rival to Iran. And the reason why Saudi Arabia doesn't like the administration is that the administration pivoted uh, away from Saudi Arabia to Iran. So I wouldn't put it past MBS to, to say, hey, um, how about you give me what I want, a Saudi, uh, a U.S.-Saudi security deal, and in exchange, I'll restore half of uh, the voluntary cuts. It gives MBS a face-saving exit from his unilateral cuts, right? And it, it potentially allows the U.S. to start enforcing sanctions on Iran for a change. 
So it's it. So it. This is the this is the world where real politic meets macroeconomics, and I think that MBS. See when you when you think about OPEC, right? OPEC's revenues are a very simple equation: revenues equals volume times price uh, times price, right? And it was great for a while where they cut volumes and. Um, jacked prices up and it, made, it meant that they were revenue neutral, okay? But but when prices start getting hammered because of this dynamic we talked about where the U.S. economy is so strong it's forcing the Fed to stay high and it's crushing the rest of the world's economies uh, and crushing global commodities like oil, then then the price part of of the equation goes down, drags overall revenues down. And the danger I see for the oil market is, is the only way for the producers to make up for revenues is to jack volumes up, which, which further reduces price. And so when you saw what happened in, uh, uh, right after COVID before the plus came into OPEC plus, Remember what happened was you had a market share war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, where prices collapsed, but they each basically would not relent and tried to make it up in volumes, and that's basically what crushed the oil market down to negative prices for the first time in history. So uh, it's a this is why I call these premature cuts these premature cuts from OPEC have the uh, the perverse impact of keeping the Fed, A, more vigilant and, and tighter than it should be at this stage of the game. And two, it also creates more forward supply elasticity, right? Because, because you know, there's, there's all this uh, spare capacity overhang now that we didn't have before. So, so, the, so the market dynamic could not be more different than 1973, Scott. No, no, that's that's great, Michael. And I, I think another thing that's vastly different than 1973 are, you know, the relations between Israel and some of the other regional countries. As you talked about Mohammed bin Salman needing to diversify the kind of economic portfolio of Saudi Arabia, one of the enablers of that for the region has been the Abraham Accords. And, you know, the the you know, the golden goose of that for this administration was to try to find a way to normalize relations between Israel and the Saudis. And with part of the ask of Saudi Arabia likely being some type of security guarantee model vis-a-vis, or through the United States vis-a-vis Iran, right? And uh, as I've tried to explain to people and trying to make sense of the dynamics since October 7th, that kind of apprehension and fear of Iran's potential, but you know, especially when it comes to its nuclear capability, is is always there in the background, right? Um, and so it'll be interesting to see whether or not, and, and to what degree, kind of trying to pursue normalization will happen. Some say, for Mohammed bin Salman, he's going to have to wait at least a year. Um, there's a lot of uh, coverage of. You know, how are countries that did sign the Abraham Accords, like the Emiratis, Morocco, Bahrain, how, how, how are they going to kind of interpret where these things uh, are going forward? Um, you know, uh, another aspect of the conflict, too, is, you know, so far, as you said, the markets have reacted fairly quickly 
when anything happens. It doesn't matter if it's been oil, if it's been LNG. You know, the, the risk is not just one, I think, of the actual resource, but the movement of these resources, right? So that the physical geography of how energy gets distributed. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I've talked to folks about is the relationship between where Iran has its network of surrogates and proxies and where those surrogates and proxies are very, very close to, if not right on, the major maritime choke points that allow oil and gas to leave the region, the Strait of Hormuz, the Bab el-Mendeb yep. uh, Strait, which is by Yemen. Yep. And obviously, this current fighting right now is happening not far from the Suez. Uh, Israel had Chevron shut down some uh, gas extraction platforms. I read that they just started mm. back up yesterday. But, uh, but again, it, it just shows that there could be potential momentum, even though the structural aspects of things are vastly different. The geopolitical risk, and particularly with conflict, could be heavily disruptive. So I really appreciated you, um, you know, bringing that up. Well, I, I, w I learned a lot reading your recent paper uh, article, Scott, entitled Geopolitical Risks to the European Gas and LNG Market. And I'm I'm definitely I learned a lot because I'm I'm much more studied in oil than than LNG. But but, you know, I, I would say, though, that, um, you know, you raise some very, very interesting points about the increasing geopolitical choke points in the gas market. And, you know, e even though those choke points that you mentioned in oil are key, I would argue that even after the um, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war and all the sanctions, you, you notice that the sanctions with respect to oil have all been deliberately yes. toothless. <laughs> deliberately toothless, because there was all this fear initially that we could potentially lose 4 million barrels per day of Russian supply. None of that happened. And so, and I and I opined from the from day one. I said the pr the problem is that oil, given the nature of its transport, there are all these ways to get around sanctions and ship to ship transfers and and, and whatnot. And unless there is actually a a a blockade of various sea routes the oil is going to get where it needs to go. Like India, for example. Now, correct, right? You could, there are all these games that they've been playing where, you know, for instance, an unsanctioned country will, would, you know, buy, buy oil, refine it, and then sell product. I mean, it's almost like money laundering yeah. in a way, right? Um, but, but, it's, but, but my point is that those, those geopolitical choke points have been somewhat rendered moot by by, uh, I guess, this po the poorest nature of these sanctions. And I would argue that this was probably, the poorest nature of the sanctions was probably um, deliberate because the world cannot function without oil. Now, ga gas, however, is very interesting. Maybe uh, I would be interested to hear, I, I would love to hear maybe you summarize a little bit um, your you know, some of some of the points that you made in this paper and talk about how you think uh, the geopolitics of gas and LNG in particular are becoming more 
uh, I guess, geopolitically fraught? Hey, Mike, thanks. Yeah, no, this is this is a great question. It's been interesting to see the differences in the ways in which particularly Europe has changed in its reaction to oil versus gas, both gas and its, you know, in its gaseous state, as well as with LNG itself. Um, I think for a long time, and many of our listeners would know this, Europe benefited from an easily accessible, uh, relatively cheap and dependable source of gas from Russia for a very, very long time. And that allowed kind of the economics of Europe to kind of drive on its own without really concern of major geopolitical disruption. You're getting gas from the continent, right? Uh, when the taps kind of got turned off uh, after, 20, after the invasion in 2022, there then becomes this scramble for diver- diversification of energy type, but also diversification of energy source. And so one of the things that's interested me is when you look at non-Russian-based sources of gas, both in its natural state or in LNG, what what liabilities are you exchanging, or what vulnerabilities are you are you get, are you going towards as you wean yourself off Russian gas and look for gas or LNG from other sources, right? So, you know, we were, we've talked a lot about the Middle East. Many of our listeners probably know Qatar is the number one um, exporter from that region of LNG. China relies on it a lot. But so do our major allies and partners in the in the Indo-Pacific. So Japan, South Korea, uh, Europe is trying to get into the LNG market out of Qatar, but it's also looking at areas in its uh, periphery. But each of these other additional sources come with it certain risk, right? So uh, looking at North African sources, it's very proximate. It's literally right across the Mediterranean. But you're also talking about countries that have political instability and challenges. The number one exporter of gas to Europe right now is Norway, which in many ways is great because it's a country that's sound financially. It's a member of NATO. It's a productive contributor uh, in other forms. And it already has an established undersea infrastructure to get gas to multiple points across northern and central Europe. The challenge with that infrastructure, though, as I pointed out in this paper you mentioned, is that it's highly vulnerable. Right? We saw just last yep. year with the destruction of uh, Nord Stream 2, and even more recently, there's been instances of underwater piping and underwater cabling being uh, you know, destroyed, cut, uh, messed with. It just shows the vulnerability of this infrastructure. And I just use that as an example. And a key point... The, the, the... The key point, though, I want to—I just want to highlight, though, the difference between gas and oil is the prime, the most efficient method of transport of gas is still yes. by pipeline. Now, LNG versus seaborne. Now, LNG is the seaborne version of transporting gas, but LNG, obviously, you know, there there are issues, right? It's much, it's more expensive, and also that you know there there are the reason why the TTF. Uh, market is completely divorced from Henry Hub is that, you know, there there is a limit to the amount of global arbitrage because there's just there are limits on both offtake and intake capacity of LNG on both sides of the game. So until until that arbitrage can be closed, uh, gas is still primarily a transport by pipeline commodity, which makes it subject to these geopolitical risks in a way that oil is not. Yes, and it, and 
and in just the the risks and the challenges in the undersea domain go to include you know not only the gas infrastructure but just fiber optics you know most most of our listeners may or may not know the vast majority of under of fiber optic cables globally that are in many ways the veins of the international financial system that's all inherently privatized most governments most western governments have little to do with anything when it comes to surveillance and security of fiber optics now a lot of times Fiber optic cables, you know, undersea cables can get disrupted, but there's always redundant systems. But it doesn't mean that that's not a platform of high vulnerability going forward, particularly if you wanted to impose costs. Uh, about two years ago. Well, Star, Star, Starlink is trying to change that vulnerability, yeah. right? Too, too bad you can't beam commodities <laughs> through space. Exactly, right? Geography still matters. There is a as a, That's right. That's the difference between Adams and as a uh, <laughs> as a British Army general who was trying to uh, explain the use of military force on the ground. He said, "I cannot cyber my way across a river crossing." Right. So, so there's yep. there's this balance of things. Um, but no. So it it's definitely LNG, gas, oil, all very very interesting. You know, I think one of the other things that we see, Michael, too, is. It, an increased consideration about how conversions to quote unquote sustainable or green energy are ways to buy down risk of the types that we've talked about for the last 45 minutes. But I think also, just like our conversation um, earlier about exchanging one set of challenges for another, making a false equivalence of, of maybe 1973 to today, there are also risks and challenges in trying to make this transition, even if we're past peak oil. And we can dis we can discuss whether or not you agree with that or not. But but going towards uh, renewables and uh, and green energy tech is a way to buy down uh, risk from energy security. You know, you and I have talked about this a little bit as well, and I, and uh, and I'd really welcome your thoughts on this topic. Yeah. No. Th again, how many hours <laughs> do we have? Because I, you know, I I I, I think that uh, I don't believe in the peak oil theory because I believe that the world in general is starved for energy and, and energy demand will generally grow. And I think we need all sources. In other words, it's not, it's not one or the other, it's one and the other. We need all sources. And so one of the dangers I see with this premature uh, pivot to all of these ESG sources is it's this it's this one or the other type of thinking. And so when you go to uh, Europe, for instance, and Germany in particular, you know, I, I think you and I have privately talked about how I think I, I really think that Germany has learned a bad lesson from uh, Mother's Nature's gift last year of the warmest winter in 40 years, because it's, uh, you know, not only are they uh, making a mistake, in my opinion, by mothballing their nukes and putting more, you know, wind and solar in a country where the sun doesn't shine much and the wind doesn't blow much. Um, you know, they they got bailed out by Western LNG and they got bailed out by Mother Nature. And in your article, um, you have you I mean, you literally quantified this. You showed uh the 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 metrics how you know lng sources and demand reduction as a result of a warmer winter essentially made up for the lion's share 
of the loss of, uh, of Russian gas. So, so I, the fact that, um, you know, essentially, you know, Germany has doubled down on, uh, on these policies, I think could bite them in the ass as early as this winter. A good friend of mine named Alex Stahl, who is a uh, expert on um, on uh, uh, European gas flows, says that you know even though Europe is essentially ninety uh, six, their stockpiles of gas are essentially at ninety six percent. If you just straight line, you know, sort of like the current climate uh, forecasts, um, and you know, it's not we're not even talking about a. a unusually cold winter but um it, within six months uh they could be down to like i don't know 25 percent mm-hmm. storage uh so so it's a big issue um th- there's another issue that i i thought really uh was interesting uh in in your paper because you pointed out that the uh a couple of different uh uh frailties uh, ge- geopolitical frailties uh, for for the gas market. One was the Armenia Azerbaijan war, and um, in particular, you talked about how um, the challenges facing the EU are that Macron and McAllister, uh, uh, for you know moral rectitude reasons, are uh, basically opposing this additional investment in, in gas security in that, in that area of the world. And so it, it, it made me think that, you know, this is an age old conundrum of the countries of the West because the countries of the West always default to this position of moral rectitude uh, over geopolitical security. And then you think about our biggest geopolitical rival, China, where they stay out of the whole moral suasion right. game, right? And so, and so they are uh, very uh, cold in calculating in their geopolitical goals, whereas the countries of the West are not. And so, not passing judgment on one or the other, but geopolitically, I wonder whether it just puts the nations of the West at a almost like a structural disadvantage if we you know i'll I'll give you another example scott which is you know the whole showdown between the biden administration and mbs over khashoggi okay now if that was the cover for the pivot away from saudi arabia and the pivot towards iran well i would say that that was a big big geopolitical mistake to make um it was terrible what happened to khashoggi but um you know, I, I one one has to wonder whether the 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 geopolitics and national security have to have to trump these issues. So I don't know. Yeah, what are your no, thoughts it's, on it's, that? It's, it's, it's a, a very great question. Politically fraught. No, issue. it is. And, <laughs> and what's really fascinating is if you look at a lot of the research that's been done about you know the transition to to green to renewables, that no matter which kind of pathway you have going forward. There is always going to be a demand for fossil fuels, right? And as the demand for that fossil fuel, even if it decreases over time, it increases the concentration of who the players are of where you can get it. And it just so happens that those are not necessarily politically liberal democratic governments, 
right? And I think this is one of the points in the, the LNG piece in Europe is, hey, Azerbaijan has a lot of fossil fuels and resources, but politically is not aligned to the way that the EU thinks about things, right? Um, there's a lot of jockeying position, uh, jockeying for position and influence in North Africa for natural gas. But again, you're, you have this, this trade-off of things that you have to consider. It's this balance of, of values and interests, right? That, that bedevil democracies going forward. Um, but it, but as you said, it, it's, it, it also then drives the question of, you know, what are the assets that the United States has that where it can support like-minded countries? You know, one of the reasons why Europe was able to weather the winter last year was because we had a, the ability to export a huge volume of North American LNG that even five years ago was, yep. was not a reality, right? Um, and, yep. and so yep. as you've talked about in your research about energy and economics as a weapon that could be used against the United States in the West, how does the United States then flip that paradigm whereby energy can be a way to insulate and support like-minded nations? Particularly if we think that alliances and coalitions and things like this really, really matter, if energy is the lifeblood of the global economy, and that a powerful economy is a precursor to military and diplomatic power, then then this is something to really consider and think about in a transformational than this than purely just a transactional way going forward. Well, step number one is to do no harm to thyself, like emptying out your <laughs> SPR, um, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it almost seems kind of ludicrous because you know we're talking about how to be a rescuer to the world where we are directly shooting ourselves in the foot with things like that, in my opinion. Um, another thing that we could do, and we highlight this in our West Point paper, is that, you know, in the early days of the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict, there were these nonsensical talks from the administration and from our own uh, Department of Energy saying that they might ban oil exports. And if you remember, okay, so the oil export ban was uh, uh, enacted, I don't know, something like 40, 40 years ago, and then was was done away. It, it was enacted in direct response to the 1973 uh, mm -hmm. oil embargo, right? And so it was in place for 40 years until the Obama, Obama administration actually did away with it. And then, you know, with the oil spike last year, there was talk about bringing it back. And I wrote a piece then saying, you know, this is a an example of a complete lack of understanding of of our energy uh, flows and infrastructure here. Because number one, shale uh, produces light grades of oil. Um, number two, our refining our entire refinery system was tooled from the 1970s when we didn't have these light grades of oil so they were the the refineries are uh can only process heavier grades which we essentially get from the middle east and we can also get heavier grades from from canada but again what do we do we uh, did away with uh the keystone pipeline which uh, uh hobbles our ability to to source heavier grades just from our own continent and forces us to continue to import uh, from the Middle East. So if you actually banned uh, oil exports, you you crush the domestic shale oil industry 
oil, uh, the light grades that we export to the rest of the world would back up at Cushing and create severe price declines. But it, but it would actually spike gasoline prices because we would then have to source both gasoline and Brent from elsewhere. And then, and then here's the other crazy thing, Scott. You probably know about this anachronistic law called the Jones Act. So most of our refining capacity uh, is based in the Gulf Coast. And the Gulf Coast refiners are the ones that are dependent on heavier grades. Well, the only part of uh, our refining network that can process some of the heavier grades are in the Northeast. And, but there are no pipelines from the center of the continent to the Northeast. And so what about us just shipping our uh, light grades from the Gulf Coast to the Northeast? Well, because of the Jones Act, we can't do that either. <laughs> so, so there there are a lot of uh, problems and examples of how, like, sort of, you know, one hand doesn't talk to the other here. We are so we are a country that is so rich in natural resources, but we've got a lot of uh, political and um, legal uh, sort of uh, uh, impediments to fully enable that flex yeah. if you if you if you, you know what i mean it's frustrating right. right as a citizen it's very very frustrating to see and then and then with respect to lng how you talked about how north america essentially came to the rescue of europe that's frustrating to me to watch too because all, there's nothing there's no free lunch if if we export all this lng that's going to dra drag our henry hub prices uh, ultimately higher and so why is you know why is europe mothballing its nukes and relying on more uh north american lng when they should be uh you know trying to help themselves hmm. first by by having more stable baseload capacity in the first place oh no, absolutely and and you know michael well we're um well we're talking about north america and talking about the us and not a I know we've just got a few minutes left with you. One of the things I, I wanted to just really quickly get your take on is energy in the Western Hemisphere, particularly in Central and Latin America. And the only reason why I ask is this is a region that obviously, you know, isn't always covered, but I think is highly consequential, both from an energy and from a, from a geopolitical perspective. We've seen in the last few months, the Biden administration has kind of taken off some of the sanctions when it relates to oil in Venezuela. I'm sure you're probably familiar with other reports about the potential of significant reserves of oil and maybe even gas off the coast of Guyana. Could you just kind of maybe just in a few minutes, just for our listeners, what would any of this at all mean if, you know, if Venezuela started to produce again, if there was actually more energy than we already know about um, in the greater Caribbean basin, or we just still just kind of locked in, you know, the hard, brutal fact of, of what is potentially available ge uh, geologically. And that even with these breakthroughs, it's just changing things at the margins. It's not necessarily transformational in the ways that maybe some analysts try to describe. I mean, look, Venezuela is known to have the largest reserves in the world, even bigger than, than Saudi Arabia. But... Uh, because they've been under sanctions for so long and they don't have a stable political system, right? It's not as if a relaxation of sanctions is going to bring about a flood for oil. It, there's no panacea. It takes time to revive that sector, right? 
Um, I'll give you an example of why. Look, the shale revolution uh, is really the confluence of a bunch of unique factors coming together to enable this. And they are the resource, the number one, right, being there. But they are also the, the access to cheap capital, the abundance of water infrastructure, uh, and a legal system that incentivizes development. So I'll give you an example of how, if you take Argentina, for instance, Argentina's Vaca Muerta shale is in, an incredible formation, right? And years and years ago, when I was still managing my hedge fund, I owned like a, a junior EMP in, in Argentina. And I, and I even, you know, flew out to Buenos Aires and then took a little puddle jumper to Neuquén province to go kick the tires on my investment. And I realized that, you know what, this Vaca Muerta dream, it's just one piece of the puzzle because Argentina uh, is beset by socialist politics. We, the U.S. has uh, private mineral rights that, that basically incentivizes you know, landowners and, and whatnot to, to develop these resources. Argentina does not. Most of the rest of the world, certainly Venezuela, does not. Okay? Um, Argentina also doesn't have the requisite water and offtake infrastructure. Uh, which 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 West Texas has, right? So again, it goes back to geography too. Geography, trust in the legal system, the access to capital, deep capital uh, markets. So so the mere existence of natural resources does not guarantee its ability to get extracted, and that is critical for people to understand because. That's why the U. I'm. I think the U.S. shale miracle is not going to be repeated anytime soon in many of these other countries, uh, and that's that's why I do. I am longer term uh, bullish on on uh, oil. Um, the other thing I just want to touch upon. I know we're we're running out of time, but you know, you talked a little bit about you know, trading dependencies, and um, one of the the, the points that we raised in our paper is that, you know, if you look at the, the concentration, if you look at power concentrations, right, OPEC produces about, you know, 40, 30 to 40% of the world's mm -hmm. oil, right? And that's a big, that, that, that is a big concentration. But the, remember that the U.S., though, is the largest single producer at roughly 13% of world production. Now, the... ESG folks would have you believe that, okay, well, oil is such a dirty, bad thing that we need to get away from that. Uh, and, and we're so dependent on the Middle East, we need to get away from that. But what's the alternative? The alternative, if you look at EVs, right, you are then seeding a sort of 40% world dependency on hydrocarbons to what, a 90% dependency on China in, in its, uh, because it's got a lock on uh, on, you know, the, you know, for instance, yeah, like the, large, the largest EV um, manufacturer right? in the world right now. Correct. And so, and so it, it's, it's a, and, and that's the frustrating thing that I see with respect to the SG argument, because so many of the arguments are taken in a vacuum and not from a relative perspective. Right. right. No, that's, that's great. As, as I, as I like to always say, geography will always matter. And history always gets a vote. Uh, Mike, thank you yep. so, so very much for joining us for the Geopolitics of Commodities podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Scott Smitson, and look forward to doing this again sometime, Mike.
Love it. Thank you for having me.